So welcome to the SWP podcast. My guest today is David Edwards. David heads Vizier's workforce planning advisory practice, helping customers to develop best practice approaches to implementing the workforce planning function in which the Vizier people suite plays a pivotal role. David has an extensive background in professional services, leadership, program management, and workforce planning, and served in that capacity for several years with NatWest Group. When he's not living and breathing the topic, David enjoys gardening, singing in a soul band, running, and not playing golf. Whilst he's one of the most passionate, enthusiastic, and collaborative SWP advocates I know, he is perhaps best known for his famous one-liner at the Institute's global launch event, Sometimes you just have to speak Suffolk to your mum. Please join me in welcoming David Edwards. Welcome, David. <laughs> Hello. Hello. How are you? Um, uh, <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. I, I, I'm not sure I've got enough notes, actually, to uh, to pay you for an introduction like that. Um, but uh, but thank you, Nick, all the same. And, um, and lessons in how to speak Suffolk to your mum are available uh, on my website, What's He Talking About? <laughs> certainly, certainly a memorable moment. And and based on our um, our most recent uh, text message exchange, I should have added not skiing in there as well. But <laughs> <laughs> well, yes, you're right. Uh, an aversion to uh, to heights, um, unprotected speed, and a, a very poor sense of balance really doesn't make for a good skier. Um, and uh, I'm certainly not a good skier. Uh, well, you are a great workforce planner, so it's um, it's fantastic to to have you join us. Uh, you know, David, I'm really keen to to sort of uncover what um, strategic workforce planning career pathways look like for you know strategic workforce planners of the future. But but let's talk about how you found strategic workforce planning. What was your pathway or journey into the space, and and how did you arrive at where you're at today? Oh goodness me! Um, well, I suppose it depends how far you want to go back. But uh, yeah, my my, fir- my first full time job actually was uh, as a tumble dryer operator in a psychiatric hospital laundry. Not many people know that or want to. Uh, <laughs> but but um, it's a very eclectic career. You 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 read out most of it. That took almost as long as my career has lasted. Uh, I found my way into this particular sort of work uh, when I was working in a, uh, a large investment bank and they were looking to what they called rightshore, which was effectively to uh, just leverage the, uh, the the lower rates which were available in um, in offshore locations for technologists. And that was a big thing. Uh, at that particular time, everybody was sort of rushing out to India or other similar kind of locations. And it morphed from just trying to do that into the execution of the uh, the, the less savory flip side, uh, which, of course, is uh, letting people go in the UK. That got me into the whole story around the data. And you, you started to understand that there was... A, so much more complexity in this in this whole piece that sort of um, so much of what was being done was very knee jerk, paid little attention perhaps to uh, what was possible for those uh, the, those affected employees, and really what we 
what we started to learn over probably a course of three, four, five years was that by stringing together pieces of data and pieces of systems, you could start to come up with insights uh, which gave a very different complexion to the perceived reality that was happening in an organization. One of those key, most key insights was uh, that we were letting employees go from roles in locations at the same time as we were hiring into almost identical locations and similar roles, uh, people on a temporary basis, uh, and that those people who were there on a temporary basis weren't temporary at all, and they were staying there for a couple of years. Um, that then begs the question, well, how can you avoid that? Because surely that's not good for the long-term health of an organization. It's certainly not a good employee value proposition, uh, and it certainly is not a good look for a company. That's really got where I started to sort of think about how you could do better. Strategic workforce planning is a critical element of that because without that, the, the organizations which fulfill the plan or which execute on the plan have no real anchor point. They have no real reference point to enable them to start doing things at scale, start doing things in advance. Um, and it's all about the amount of time that you have to do things differently. That's what workforce planning gives you. Mm. I don't know I if that answered the question, but no, uh, absolutely, but. <laughs> it does. It does, and so much of what you say resonates with me, even personally. And you know, you're not the first. You're not the first person I've I've had a conversation with in this forum that has found strategic workforce planning by almost being voluntold for a, a large-scale workforce reduction project. And mm. I just wonder whether the the interest and passion for the space is born out of when you're involved in that sort of project and you see what happens and, and you see the impacts it has on the organisation, do you then think, well, what could have been done to avoid the need to do this in the first place? Yeah, what, what could we have done differently as an organization to structure ourselves and avoid the need for, you know, ongoing large scale, you know, workforce reductions. And, and for me, you know, that's, that's where I had my light bulb moments is there's got to be a better way than, than, you know, having to try and make all these redundancies on mass, you know, uh, as a massive about face. Um, yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. I, uh, it's, I think you have to have a heart of stone to just treat this as a numbers exercise, even when the numbers are really big. Um, yeah, I have been through uh, my own redundancy journeys, and it's not nice. Mm. And you know, when when you are dealing with potentially large numbers, a thousand or however many it might be, um, always remembering that. Behind each of those numbers is a human story and a whole bunch of people, family, friends, whatever, around that, whose lives will always also be impacted in some way, shape or form uh, by that. I think 
I think it keeps you honest. It, it, it needs to keep you real. Um, mm. But all too often, it kind of sort of descends into a, a very sort of binary, you know, this one or this one kind of, uh, kind of story. I think you need to have that sort of conscience um, that because the, the flip side of it is if you're able to do something better, um, the personal reward is enormous. You, you, you get a great sense of well-being and having done something uh, noble, if that's the right word, mm. uh, from ha having helped to extend somebody's career instead of ha uh, having worked to curtail it. Yeah, it, it, absolutely. It's, it's transformative for you. Yeah. I mean, look, thankfully for, for workforce planning planners across most parts of the world, that dynamics are very different one to, to the one that you know, we went through sort of 10 to 20 years ago where yeah. there were enough people <laughs> and not enough work. And, and yeah, that, that was part of the course. Whereas you don't, you don't hear of that coming up as frequently these days. You hear of the opposite problem more often than not, don't you? Yes. Yes, you do. Um, yeah, I think uh, it, well, there's been a happy co uh, coinciding of um, better approaches to the data and better approaches towards people, a recognition that um, the, the value in your people far, out, uh, far outstrips that which you thought it had. And especially in times when talent is tight, uh, mm. there is a there there's an imperative that perhaps wasn't there before people are not expendable mm. um, and that's not just because there's a shortage but because actually that's the right thing to do and doing the right thing is is no longer a kind of uh, option uh, yeah. for a large organization it's now a necessity <laughs> <laughs> well, there's one or two large organisations globally that, that aren't playing by that <laughs> that rule, <laughs> David. <laughs> I'm not sure no, how it's going to go I, for them in the long run. But <laughs> I, 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 I don't disagree. I don't disagree with you. Um, but I can promise you, you'll never find a a bed in any office that I'm responsible for. Uh, that's um, funny. Um, but no, I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I, I, it's it's not entirely. Yeah, it's never going to be entirely a seller's market, but I think that hiring organisations just have to be, you know, they they have to be on their game in order to uh, to attract uh, attract the best people. Yeah, and they have to think about buying differently. You know, if yeah. if they want to continue to try and buy in the same way, it will absolutely be a seller's market. It'll be name your price for those that are deemed top top talent, hard to fill roles, yeah. blah, 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 blah. But if organisations mm. can start to change those conversations and think differently about what buying looks like, that's <laughs> when that, that dynamic will stay in a nice sort of economic equilibrium. Yes. Um and I wonder what sort of yeah you know, what what what's the latest thing that's sort of helping us along that path? I think you know we we heard people talking about skills planning for quite some time, um, and you and I both have a very similar view uh, about skills planning, and it is that uh, that's a very one-dimensional way of looking at these things. 
that the, the I think the true understanding of people's capability requires you to be looking across a whole range of different factors, both human and professional, uh, but also industry uh, oriented. Um, yeah, it, it, to use the phrase I've, I've, I've uh, used a few times now. My granddaughter has a uh, an archaeology badge from Brownies. It doesn't make her an archaeologist. Mm. Um, it, it, you, along with the badge, you've got to have the experience. You've got to have the the point in your career when it makes sense for you to be looking for something else. Uh, so. Put a different way, if you're, you know, if you haven't been long in the uh, the current job, unless you're really dissatisfied with it, mm-hmm. you're not going to be a candidate. Um, a whole book, collection of environmental factors. Um, Adam Gibson is really good at this. He's sort of kind of written about all these different elements which make up capability. And mm-hmm. I think there's more besides. You know, we're we're actually learning increasingly as we go along that if we use combination of industry data, AI, um, and futurizing of, uh, of roles, we can start to understand which roles are likely to um, become more automated over time. Yeah. But we can also, um, and this is the critical bit, we can also start to identify what sort of skills, what sort of capabilities we're going to need from people. Mm. Then you start joining up the dots and saying, right, these people have this much. They are a 70% fit. This is what it's going to take to get them to 100%. Now we're into a completely different sort of ball game. Now, that doesn't solve the problem. That just tells you what's possible. You've still got to change mindsets to accept that 70% is okay. Mm. Yeah. And that, that's been a sort of a kind of mantra from senior leadership i think uh, certainly in in places over the years but it's not actually translated into what happens on the ground yeah absolutely Sorry, that's just banned a whole bunch of uh, topics in one go uh, it? yeah <laughs> and, and you know how passionate i am about this stuff and and you know i've always felt that adam probably brought a new dimension of thinking uh to the table for me but i've always felt that you've got um you know, a number of, of, of skills or, or they represent tools that go in the toolkit and they help you do the job. But but how you combine those tools and how you combine and execute those skills really relies on the underlying capability. So they are absolutely important and we need to understand them and we need to know, you know, um, where they apply. But what we really need is is to to make sure we have the capabilities within our workforce to be able to execute those skills within a certain environment, in a certain order, at a certain time, to realise the outcomes that that we're after. Um, so, yep. you know, if we skill a whole bunch of people with Microsoft Excel, that doesn't make us that doesn't make us good data analysts. That makes us <laughs> no. good executors, <laughs> and that's it. So, I, t- I totally agree with you. Yeah, yeah, and and you know, I am. Yeah, I, I'm. I'm really interested in this uh, in this particular space. Uh, the I come across a lot of clients, a lot of customers who are building job and skills taxonomies. Mm. Um, my worry about that in-house approach, 
And by the way, I don't have an you know an external approach. I would like to proffer instead. Yeah. Yeah, but yeah, my yeah. worry about that about that approach is that um, there's almost an inbuilt obsolescence about it. Yeah, that the the pace of change is such that that role and skill taxonomy will very quickly either need a lot of maintenance or will fall into disuse and, mm. and be re- and, and be replaced by something more ad hoc. Mm. Um, the do I think there's a way forward uh, for that? I think the use of more external. Um, sources or reference uh, reference data i think uh, is a a way of going about it and i think also we have to be mindful that that, that actually getting skills data into a system is not easy even if you've got the most wonderful taxonomy how do you get mm-hmm. it in is it yeah. self certified um is it something that's tested well, yeah. yeah that's a very expensive and time consuming thing to do mm. is it is it better to to actually infer, you know, if someone has a particular role and they've been in that role for a certain amount of time, can we can we make inferences from that as to what it is that they're likely to be able to do? Mm. Is 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 that any worse a way of gauging someone's capability than it is to get them to type something in? Well, I don't. I don't think so because, um, and we do a lot of work over in consulting land around this, and we don't yet have great psych assessment tools that can genuinely assess capability. They assess preferences, styles. This person's more likely to do this, less likely to do this. They don't really say this person is a an intermediate in critical thinking. On no. mass, these tools don't do that yet. Now. Behavioural-based interviewing does, but can we behaviourally-based interview all of our workforce for no apparent reason? No, we can't. We can only really do that when they enter the organisation or when they're they're applying internally for a role we've got an excuse to. So that then says, well, what what vehicles do we have? You know, and there are a few things we can do like um, collective uh, assessments and calibrated assessments by leaders and those sort of things. But but you're right, like we don't have a a pinpoint way of doing that just yet. So it is no worse um, than than saying I'm capable. The the inference is probably even um, you know a, a more scientific way of actually of actually doing it. I I kind of sort of think of. Uh... I, and I, I wish I could capture the picture. You know, when you sort of get a, a, a new phone um, uh, or, or a new iPhone, at least. Sorry, that's no sales pitch. Uh, but the old <laughs> good people, <laughs> good people at Apple. Yes, <laughs> yes, the, the, yes, those wonderful people at Apple. You know, um, it, you know the phone's getting on. Um, but the old phone, when it detects that you're trying to sort of start a new phone up, it comes up with, the, with this very strange-looking sort of molecular type sort of structure with lots of sort of moving dots and things. Mm. And actually, that's how I think of the data that accumulates around a person, you know, closer to the center of the, you know, the the atom, you've got sort of, you know, pretty solid core kind of sort of knowledge about somebody, you know, their, Mm. their, their obvious demographics and things like that. And as you sort of kind of 
you know, you move away from the sort of the nucleus, you've got lots of peripheral uh, reference points, which I think AI and machine learning is now capable of discernment from that. Um, and I think the the winners, at least in this next phase of, uh, of, of this kind of technology, are going to be those who are able to make sense out of the sort of the, you know, the outlying sort of electrons and stuff which are buzzing around the mm. core. Mm. Yeah, it's a sort of a rather, you know, a rather weird sort of analogy, but that, you know, that's what that's what the data is actually like. And and yeah, and and we've got now vehicles which are becoming really really good at tying that together for us. I think they've got a bit of a bit of work to do, but you know, having explored things like Chat GPT, um, you know, there's huge potential for for us to get access to information you know, really, really, really quickly in the not too distant future. Um and that 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 will help things like populating job architectures if we're going to stay in that sphere. But my, my question for you is really what's the future of of maybe a concept like the work architecture as opposed to the job architecture? So instead of thinking about um you know what roles we have and, and how that defines our our organization and influences how we plan the evolution to what work do we need to do and then the world's our oyster well yes um but i think you've got to do an awful lot of rewiring of um of, of current established not not academic thinking necessarily or anal or analyst thinking but actually in the workplace and I, you know, again i go back to sort of some of my tired old analogies but you know if uh, if your execs uh, are kind of sort of looking at sort of some you know bright sort of uh, uh, you know angelic future the guys on the ground are still having to deal with stuff. Mm. They're still having to get you know, get a job done on a day-to-day -day basis. Mm. Um, and it, something really quite transformative has to happen for them to be able to look up from you know, the, the grind that they, they are compelled to get stuck into um, and do something differently. Now, I think there are ways. Um, I agree. I think that the sort of you know, the notion of more sort of pop-up functions or pop-up groups of people to um, uh, to get particular jobs done is a is a way forward. And I think that we could see more gig-like features, even in sort of uh, forms of work uh, that that might previously have been considered permanent. Um, I remember an article from Deloitte not so terribly long ago that was talking about sort of the pop-up um, compensation round. So instead of having sort of, you know, a, a, a set team of people who are sort of kind of spending their year sort of you know, working on stuff and then, oh, yeah, here comes the compensation round. Instead, you have compensation experts. Mm, mm. And they literally sort of gig from one sort of mm. uh, round to another in different organizations. How do you get to that? I think that Peer-to-peer -peer sourcing is one answer. Uh, 
certainly seen some experimental uh, work in that uh, in that regard um, in a number of different businesses. <clears throat> uh, excuse me, but it takes takes a bit to go from from there to something which is properly institutionalized. Mm. But that that's where I would expect to sort of see the first sort of shoots of it instead of somebody. <laughs> excuse me deciding where someone you know, whether somebody over here is capable of doing a uh, job over there that somebody actually puts themselves up for it mm. Mm. and the the act of sort of making that connection also strengthens the uh, the, the the knowledge of what that person is capable of uh, doing and willing to do yeah um, and hopefully the feedback that that person gets also reinforces the overall ecosystem's understanding of what of how well they're able to do something. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I, I totally agree. That a lot has to change for society, for, for modern society, to <clears throat> let go of its grip on the role. You know, the grip mm. on my job, my role, and and my profession. You know, we still have a a society that's structured around trades and education, and 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 you identify with what you do by and large, unless you're a management mm. consultant, of course, and then you do whatever you're asked to do. Um, <laughs> but True. but I think you're right. I think if you if you take the the worker whose whose profession or whose trade um, is in one of those areas that you know, could become obsolete through automation or, or, or something like that in the future versus the worker who sticks his or her hand up and says, I'm interested in trying different things. The, the outcome, you know, is is the same. They're no longer working in that profession, but it's it's a different attitude and mindset that leads to that outcome. So I think we'll end up it is. heading more towards that space, how long it takes how quickly it evolves, you know, I think that remains to be seen. It's probably, it's like working remotely, isn't it? It was necessitated and now we all do it. So <laughs> depends on how yeah. hard this people crunch is really, doesn't it? Well, that's, uh, yes, that, that that's true. I must admit sort of as a, uh, you know, as a person with increasingly aching and creaking bones, it's sort of, you know, the idea of working from home is quite nice, but it doesn't actually suit everybody, I suppose. I, I, th I think we've got sort of, two strands going on we've got sort of people who are who already have strength in depth and are looking just to sort of ex extend and grow their career within sort of gigs that they can do but you've also got i think your concept of the bridge which is uh which is people who are making a profound leap from one uh, form of trade to another. Mm -hmm. Martine Mason of NatWest uh, spoke to that very eloquently, didn't she, in, yeah. the, uh, in the, the, the November launch about um, people who are currently working in bank branches, which is shutting down because of digital um, advances, uh, moving to become software engineers. And, and taking that sort of you know, the kernel of customer service with mm. them into you know into that profession, and uh, I think they're going to be two interesting strands to sort of watch as we go forward. Absolutely. Um, there's a gentleman called Justin Strahaski who who presented at Asia PAC, um, and at, at some point, no doubt, you'll see the the session. But you know, his organisation are called Human AI. And all they do, well, all they do, what they do is they enable 
organizations to connect with machine learning and AI developers. Mm-hmm. And they post yep. wicked problems as, you know, um, challenges. Um, right. They solve it. You know, a group of people accept it and, and go about solving it, which essentially forms the, the contemporary interview. You're actually solving the problem. Yeah. Um, often they're doing it in, in with others in, in a team-based environment and, and so on and so forth. And then at the end, you know, whoever's got the, the optimised solution wins the work. So it's right. just a completely different way of accessing that capability. Um, yeah. but it's the thinking, mm. right? It's the shift in thinking that I don't have to, I don't have to go and try and find this person, have them sitting on my floor under my nose, um, you know, within my grasp. Um, I need to trust, but at the same time, I can access the whole world <laughs> if I really want to shift it's, that thinking. Actually, yeah, I, I, I like it. It's, it's, it's kind of sort of a step on from sort of kind of you know, almost online consultancies, you know, or, or sort of free online freelancers, which I have seen. I haven't sort of seen that particular sort of further step, and I like it as a mm-hmm. uh, as an approach. And I think yeah. that, you know, if you want variety in work, if you want sort of interest, uh, then things like that are, are, are going to be very attractive. I, th- mm. I think it's in the nature of both you and I that you know we would be instantly drawn to something like that because we like variety. We like sort of you know whatever the next challenge is. Um, you know, I, I, I my school teacher once said I always needed a mountain to climb, and sometimes I, th- I feel as though um, I don't need to get to the top of a mountain yeah. to have decided I've already climbed it. I agree. Um, <laughs> we are cut from that claw. Absolutely. Uh, um, so two-part question. What do you find most challenging about strategic workforce planning and what would you say are the staples that underpin a successful SWP effort? Oh, um, I think that's two sides of the same coin for me. Um, uh, I think the, the biggest challenges I've I find with customers and also uh, you know, in my own experiences uh, is the absence of a a well-defined sense as to what good is going to look like. What are you? Know, what's the what's the benefit story? What's the value proposition? What's the vision? You know, I, I feel very strongly that if you don't have a vision as to what is you know what. what the end game is going to be giving you or doing for you, then you shouldn't even start. Mm. Uh, I, I, I really mm. don't. Uh, the flip side, uh, almost necessarily, therefore, is you need a vision to, you know, to have a successful workforce plan, but you also need to know how you're going to execute on that. Mm. Um, a a work. Just implementing workforce planning in its purest sense, just to deliver a, to create a plan, um, doesn't deliver any kind of benefit other than perhaps speeding the process up, especially if you use technology. Mm. It's what the workforce plan tells you and the actions that it enables that you would not otherwise have been able to do that's really important. And therefore, a successful strategic workforce planning, um, implementation has to involve all of the players who whose role it is to execute that plan whether that be learning and development 
talent acquisition, mm-hmm. um, external vendors, your or your vendor management. All of those players have to be involved because you're feeding them. Your plan is feeding them the information that they say they crave. Tell us what the total picture is. We can do better. Yeah, we can do mm. something better with that. Mm. Mm. Um, but don't do it in isolation from those people. They have got to be part of your inner program team, and they've got mm. to be solving their particular parts of the problem story as they go, whether that be approval governance, whether that be the number of vendors or the um, or the contractual arrangements you have with them, whether it be the, uh, the hiring pipelines or indeed the design of courseware. All of those things have to be able to work as well in execution mm. of the plan. Mm. Absolutely. And to sort of to build on that, there needs to be a these need to be sort of you know um nine knowns or they need to be consciously involved in that so you know the the especially the l and d and and t a teams that you mentioned i mean the the we're seeing conversations everywhere now at all our events as you've been a part of the rising importance of of connectivity between strategic workforce planning talent acquisition and learning and development in particular but these these divisions, departments, teams within within our businesses need to have a baseline level of understanding and even capability in strategic workforce planning um, to be able to engage in that ecosystem, take from it, feedback to it, and participate. Yes. Now, the sophistication um, in those strategic workforce plans um, are. Yeah, it's, it's got to. Oh, hello. Oh, <laughs> I'd like a coffee, please. Thank you. I'll have a coffee too. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll have coffee. I, we <laughs> I, th- I think we should keep that in, don't you? It's, yeah, it's good. It's good bit. <laughs> <laughs> it brings, it, it um, brings character. <laughs> yeah. It'll exactly. happen to me, no doubt. I'll, I'll be handed a baby or something, David. <laughs> <laughs> it's happened before. Well, I hope I'm not handed a baby. I'd, I'd, I'd be getting quite worried if I was. Yeah. I, yeah. All of these guys are experts to some extent in strategic workforce planning. What do you want out of a a strategic workforce plan? You want a sophistication that takes account of what happens in the real world. And in the real world, a plan that says I'm going to hire 12 people in January uh, is is going to suffer an epic fail. Mm. Um, The people who actually know this best are the ones that you're looking to execute. Now, of course, we can use heuristics. Um, and and apply those you know, into you know, a workforce planning uh, scenario, just as just as we do uh, in our product, and others do, I'm sure as well. But there are other sort of subtleties, other variables that only these guys sort of you know, can really contribute into, and. And I think by bringing their expertise in, they can then see how that affects the plan. Yeah, they definitely need to have a level of capability um, or understanding as to sort of how the planning process works. Yeah, but yeah, you know, there's there's an upstream piece as well which we've not talked about particularly. Uh, a lot of the reason why uh, workforce 
planning is so short term is because the budgets are short term. Now, you know, a, a, a question I think for for people to consider is if you look at things, you know, with a long lens, um, perhaps at top of house. Actually, how much variation is there going on in you know, in the budgets? One of the things that I remember we found in a bank I worked for was that although individual divisions were getting sort of a degree of variability in their uh, their uh, their change budget, that over a five year period it actually was only doing about that at the mm. uh, the aggregate level. Mm. That straight away enables you to start asking different questions. You know, why do we need fifty percent? of our software developers to be external if at the top of house we know the budget is relatively stable mm. uh, we don't uh, why therefore don't we start hiring on a no regrets basis um, and just have a pipeline you know doesn't matter sort of uh, whether or not we've got a job for somebody at the moment you know it's going to be there for them eventually thank you very much um, and Yet there will be a pushback to that because there's an inference there that um, your hiring becomes more commoditized, and that your your you, your TA becomes more of a sort of a um, uh, an en masse recruitment function. Yeah, and that then resources get fanned out or people get fanned out to different areas, which yeah. is a little bit ironically, you know, that's that's how the army does it, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, well, I know that they're certainly evolving in in approaches, and and we've had um, armies, navies, air forces along to speak at certain events over over the journey. And I know that they're hoping and looking to think more in terms of capability. But you know, what what you what you're sort of saying is spot on. We've got this connection to budget, and and. Yeah. I'm slowly seeing this this five year people line, but mm. budget versus projected actuals disappear from the strategic workforce plans, which I'm ecstatic about because my eyes full <laughs> full disclosure people, my eyes glaze over when we start to talk about FTE numbers forming a critical part of the strategic workforce plan. Um, mm. Yeah, because there's no point in saying we're going to hire a thousand developers if there's not a thousand developers out there to hire. This is really yep. futile. So let's think about how we're going to supplement that capability. Um, so, you know, I, I think, though, you're right. The, the challenge is we've got this annual budget cycle. We think in terms of what we can spend this year. We don't actually really legitimately think in terms of what we can spend in four years' time. Now, mm. certain organisations, and I'm going to go to mining, oil and gas, the long, slow burn-type businesses, they do do a five-year plan, and then they mm. use the first year of that to form their budget, and that's their cycle. That actually works really well with strategic workforce planning because in between those two, we can do the refresh of our SWP. We've got five years' worth of information. The outputs of that can go into a budget. That 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 actually mm. works, but not every organisation works that way, and many just do that budget, and, and that's that. Well, well you know, I, I, you see... Yeah, age is a terrible thing because you sort of you know you you, you forget names all too quickly. But <laughs> who was the gentleman from Babcock? Um, Matt Higgs. Who, Matthew Higgs. Matt yeah. Higgs. Yeah. yeah. 
So how long how long are they planning? <laughs> Fifty they years. Thirty years. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I remember thinking that, that there were some people in their team that wouldn't be alive to see the actual end of their the theoretical end of their planning cycle, which was yeah. Which was, yeah. But but I I mean crikey you you know uh, but I don't know if that's actually a holy grail or not but you know to be able to think in those terms um, just enables you to to look totally differently at the mm. way you go about uh, sourcing people the way you go about training people as well you, know, yeah. you, you in theory at least you have the time and the space to be able to map out people's careers within that organization for their entire career, mm. which is a strange sort of kind of yeah, uh, strategic workforce planning takes us back to the future. <laughs> <laughs> and unless you work for Toyota, it's not realistic, is it? <laughs> oh, well, there we go. Well, there we go. yeah, I'll give you that. Well, NASA. <laughs> I found out that, that NASA actually, they, they're unable to make, um, they're unable to terminate people. Basically, so they have to make very good hiring decisions. <laughs> really? Yeah. Really? Yeah. I mean, okay. There are a few, there are um, a, few, a few clauses in there, like behavioral and those sort of things. But basically, they don't do the redundancy thing. They don't do the yeah the the um, the termination thing. So they need to get it right. <laughs> well, they certainly do. They yeah. certainly do. I, I ought to go. I ought to go after a job there. Perhaps. <laughs> yeah, my... My, uh, my 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 space cadet ambitions could still be realised. You never know. They're a they're a really collaborative and lovely organisation to connect with. So no doubt you'll meet them in the future. Oh, um, I hope so. Yeah, absolutely. So you've got a couple of opportunities uh, because of your amazing association with the Workforce Planning Institute, both permanently and through Visier, um to speak, which is great. We're looking forward mm. to hearing from you again. Hopefully, we've got more gold up your sleeve. Like, speaks up to your mum. What are you <laughs> hoping that that delegates, viewers of the online event, delegates uh, in in London are going to take away? What are the key messages you're hoping to to deliver across your upcoming sessions? My hope is that people will see the value, the extraordinary value that there is in doing this. You know, um, you know I, I had to take my hat off to Adam, who was able to uh, almost go up another level uh, with the, the, the degree of uh, almost altruism, which is possible out of uh, strategic workforce planning. But at, at its even most basic level, you can make the careers of your of your existing people much better as a consequence of creating that time and space to do things you could not otherwise do. Mm. You know, there's the knowledge you get from the the better availability, use and interpretation of data. And there's also the um Oh, it's, 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 the dog's been let in. That's what it is. <laughs> <laughs> um, but there's also what you can what what you can do to actually sort of bring your you know, your your people on. I just I would love people to sort of see that it's not easy to do, but done well. Um, there there are some great stories out there. We've heard some of those already, mm. um, yeah. and I think we'll hear hear more of those because people are going to want some of that. Yeah, 
Absolutely. Oh, it's it's fascinating, and and yeah, you know, we've documented the case studies over the years, and they sit in the institute library. We sit there live, and we listen to amazing people speak. Um, you know what I admire most is that the the task that professionals in this space have or the implied mm. task it's not an easy one you know we just no. we don't have the people in most countries africa is probably the main outlier uh, more people than jobs we we just don't have enough people to service the demand and unless we have professionals who can help steer that ship and help us think help organizations think differently help them explore mm. and understand and strategically link their outputs and we're in a lot of trouble. So I've got nothing but admiration, and a lot of them don't know it yet. <laughs> but that's mm. going to be the job of the future. <laughs> well, that 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 is true. I think. I mean, if 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 anyone were to say, yeah, what what? Why should I go into strategic workforce planning? And I I, I think the answer is because you'll find out about more part about more of more of the business yeah than you are ever likely to uh, to find out any other way yeah absolutely uh, and that, that it, remember Jill Agus from from Jaguar Land Rover who who'd been been there a long time but but you know she knew so much about that organization because she's got that overarching view of of every inch and crevice of it through strategic workforce planning. So it's a fantastic way to really know a business, isn't it? Oh, it absolutely is. It mm. absolutely is. And I, you know, I, I believe it's possible for the chief strategic workforce planning officer, that's a SWIPO, I suppose it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah, because yeah, it doesn't quite work, does it, as a... Uh, it, doesn't, as it, a does, it doesn't quite work, but, you know, answers on a, <laughs> Yeah, un, answers on a postcard, please, to why should yeah. I bother.com. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> but, yeah, I think there's a, there's, there is a time coming when that, that person's going to be a, a, a key influencer in the organization there's still a lot of turf warring i think to go on over who owns strategic workforce planning and the answer perhaps should be nobody apart from the uh, the ceo and the uh, the, mm. the person in charge of it do you know i i um i spoke to a a very large personnel uh professional body recently as recently as today mm. and their position was exactly that that it mm. is not it is not an HR thing. We don't believe it is. We don't believe it it, it has a, a natural home or need you know necessarily has a home there. Um so that was really it was empowering to hear that. And that's, you know, that's that's really interesting. Yeah. And I, see I think I think that that they're a huge stakeholder and and you know they know that but um ultimately um, they they acknowledge that there are professionals from outside the HR sphere who need to learn about this stuff, mm. and it could be homed anywhere. So, I was um, I was super buoyed by that, but also equally as fascinated by that as you are. Mm. Mm. Yeah, yeah. No, that's that's I I kind of sort of feel that in my bones. But uh, but to have you know to hear sort of you know that some of these large 
professional bodies are now starting to think the same way. Says mm. that uh, you know this is this is the right direction that you're going down. Yeah, we absolutely. knew that anyway, didn't we? Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was ten bucks, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Wait, I'm, um, as always, I'm really appreciative of your time. Um, we love having you involved with the Institute. We love having the CA involved with the Institute. We're looking forward to um, having you both involved at all of our upcoming events. It's fantastic. Um, and I can't wait to, to share this uh, with the viewers and, and get it out there. Absolutely. Well, it's always a pleasure, never a chore. Um, well, and, and, until it becomes a chore, then you know, I'll let you know. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> All right, Nick. Thank All you very right. best to you. Cheers. Cheers now. Bye.